Hi there. Welcome to Mental Health Professionals Network podcast series. MHPN's aim is to promote and celebrate interdisciplinary, collaborative mental health care. Welcome to Transitions, a series of conversations between two clinicians where we share our perspectives on life's transitions, the challenges, the gifts, and what we find fascinating and helpful. I'm Monica Moore, a GP with a special interest in mental health. Today, I'm really excited to introduce a special guest, Dr. Martina Gleeson. And Martina and I have known each other for more years than I can count, and I'm so looking forward to doing a deep dive. Um, So, Martina, you and I, we've been chatting about this deep dive, and we're working today to talk about the transitions that occur when people discover that perhaps the gender that they've been assuming or, or being is not the, actually their gender. And it's such an interesting thing, this transgender space. But before we do that deep dive, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, hi, Monica. As you say, we've known each other for a long time. I'm a GP practising in the Sutherland Shire of Sydney, and I've been practising as a GP for about 30 years. Um, I've always had, as most GPs, quite a proportion of my practice that is in the mental health space. Um, I realised that I needed to increase my knowledge in the transgender area when one of my patients, who I had known since childhood, came out as transgender and I didn't have the skills to help them transition. So I took responsibility for myself and increased my education and now caring for transgender people is a small part of my practice that I really enjoy. Mm, mm. So, you know, it's it's such a, a sort of an interesting field because it's it's kind of new, but it's not new. I mean, I know when we were chatting, you're kind of going, yeah, but Monica is not that new. No, transgender keep... people have been around all throughout history and prehistory and across all cultures. Uh, it's not new. What is new is the visibility and uh, giving people, I think, the words to be able to express their experience. Uh, people that have come out in public like Caitlin Jenner and um, Elliot Page are giving people a chance to see someone else owning that experience and um, and maybe helping them to understand what's been going on inside them. Um, although, of course, many people express that desire to be recognised as a gender that wasn't assigned to them at birth from quite a young age. But because it hasn't been socially acceptable, people tend to say, no, 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 you're not a boy, you're Yeah, a how girl. young? How young? Well, some children really express that desire to be something that they haven't been labelled mm. from three or four as soon as mm. they have words. They're quite young. Yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. Although not all people have expressed that desire, mm-hmm. um, but... You know, so it doesn't have to have been present since that young age. But many will say to you, I wanted them to cut my hair short and I wanted to be a boy. Mm. 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 Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that we were sort of talking about, you know, when you were telling me about this new interest of yours and, um, and I was thinking about 
when we're thinking about the mental health sort of aspect of it, um, you mentioned something called gender dysphoria and and I, I just wondered, you know, because you had to explain to me what it was and what it wasn't and all that. So can you tell us more about that? Sure, sure. Um, maybe I'd like to start first off just by talking about what is transgender. Uh, how about we do that? <laughs> yes. Because people who are cisgendered, like you and my, me, yeah. our experience of our gender is the same as the experience of our sex. Our sex is what we are biologically, chromosomally defined as. So when they look at our nappy area when we're born, they say, oh, it's a girl, um, in our case. And, um, and for a lot of the time, that ends up being that our gender experience, which is our expression of who we feel like inside, which is more in our brain, does align with the biology that we have. Um, but for transgender people, their experience of gender is different to their sex assigned at birth. Um, and gender dysphoria is probably a medical way of trying to explain that experience or that expression um, it's been an interesting journey because uh, um, if you look at various versions of the DSM over time, I think at one stage it was called transvestitism mm. and then uh, gender dysphoria became the next iteration, which um, was, you know, di it was a mental health disorder Um Whereas most people who are trans will tell you that they're not necessarily mentally unwell just because their experience of gender is different to their sex assigned at birth. Uh, but gender dysphoria is the distress someone would feel at that experience of having their gender being different to their sex assigned at birth. Mm. Um, interestingly, the ICD-10, which is another way of, um, or I think it's the 11. Um, has now taken gender dysphoria out of the mental health chapter and it's put it into the sexual health chapter so that uh, it's no longer thought of as necessarily a mental health disorder but more of a, a difference in in sex and gender, but not sexuality because sexuality is different. Again, that's who you're attracted to. Um, so it can get a bit confusing sometimes. And so sexuality, so there's physical chromosomal sex, there's gender, which is what we identify as in terms of whether we feel feminine or masculine, and then sex... Or somewhere in between. Or somewhere in between, that's right. Um, and in different situations, I, look, it could get... There's such a variety of human experience, isn't it? Mm. If you're struggling with it, um, sometimes it's helpful to look at the model. There's two different models that are used to explain it. One is the gender bread man and the other is the, the gender unicorn. And if our listeners were to look that up, they would find these lovely illustrations that show that sex is about your biological bits and your chromosomes and gender more lives in the brain and how you feel. And then you have romantic attraction or sexual attraction. Um, so there, it, it explains. And then there's also the expression. So um, you may well feel like a man, but like to wear dresses um, or present in a more 
I hate to say feminine way mm. because it really is the binary and, and hopefully because when we're, we're moving when through we women, that. You know, when I wear jeans and a jacket, you yeah. know, or something like that, I'm not really expressing a masculinity. It's actually like it's just really practical to wear pants. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and but, you know, when I'm wearing a dress or a skirt, it's kind of a bit flowy and, you know, there's more air and uh, you, so why should it just be a gendered so thing? So maybe the message is don't judge people by it's the outside. By the outside. Side, but check in with them. <laughs> Don't we? Exactly. So, so tell me, so this is, you know, leads me to the next thing because sometimes I think in my personal life I feel a bit awkward sometimes because, you know, it's all how do I create a sense of inclusion and a sense of um, uh, not offending someone and not putting my foot wrong, but also as a clinician, you know, how can we change our language? Um, how about we start with their language? Yep, sounds good. Yeah. So as a clinician, when you're meeting someone for the first time, you know, you ask them their name, don't you, mm. right? And if their name, um, well, if their name is um, you can't pick, then you can. One way of saying it is introduce yourself. So um, I'll introduce. Oh, my name is Martina, and my pronouns are she/her, and that gives someone an indication that you know. And some people who are not used to that kind of language go, "Why would you tell me that?" But a transgender person will acknowledge that you recognise that some people's pronouns are different, and will often offer you their pronouns. Um, sometimes if I'm meeting a new patient and they've been booked in as a transgender patient, but um, our computer systems have trouble dealing with, um, I will just say, my pronouns are she, her, what pronouns do you use? Um, and that gives us a chance to just establish where we're at and I don't question what a person declares themselves to be because mm. um, it's not my job, really. No, no. What What is, like, if you were to define out, like, our job as clinicians, I mean, you as a GP, okay, but also anyone who's more in that mental health space, like, what are we actually trying to do? Well, if a transgender person comes to you, um, I guess you have to work out what their goals are in coming to you um, and, and start with the goals that they declare, mm. right? Um, there are some interesting... Uh, legacies from some ways of providing gender-affirming care. Um, the So one of the models of care is that before you start gender-affirming treatment, you need uh, documentation from two different mental health professionals that you are transgender. Um, and that's been a kind of gatekeeping. Thankfully, in Australia, we have a different model of care for medical um, not surgical, but for medical um, medical approaches that people might want. And so it's called informed consent and it doesn't require a mental health professional to sign off and mm. say, you know, which, which I'm very pleased that we don't require that. We still need it for surgical procedures. Um, so that's that's one thing you might find someone coming. But it's more often that the person with the transgender experience is also experiencing some mental distress, perhaps as a result of their transgender experience, perhaps as a result of, um, you know, like if they've come out as an adult, they're transitioning in their relationship, yeah. they're transitioning in their 
workspace or their educational space or with their, their family. friends and family. Yeah. And there may be distress not caused by the fact that they've decided to come out, but by their fear of rejection or their experience of rejection. Mm. Um, hopefully more these days, there'll be more embracing rather than rejection, but mm. still people are frightened of what will happen to them. Yeah, yeah. And so they may need support with that. And they might be coming for something just random like... It might be something completely different. Completely different, like yeah. they've had a trauma at work or, um, you know, they've just... Yeah, so it, it could actually be any... I mean, I, I remember you told the story... <laughs> The, the way you put it, it's like it's like the clinically broken arm, Monica. Yes. And I just thought, oh, what a great way of... So, so yeah. So, t- so trans people um, talk about the broken arm syndrome and what they are referring to is, you know, if someone goes to hospital with a broken arm, you want to deal with their broken arm. And sometimes if it becomes... It comes out that you're transgender, all of a sudden the questions are about what's in your pants and what your gender experience has been and um, and all of a sudden some symptoms you're experiencing might be blamed on the hormone treatment you're on that's gender-affirming hormone. It's actually got nothing to do with the broken arm. Mm. So as clinicians, it's really important for us to um, keep the focus on the presenting thing and and respect the person in front of us and really only explore that part of it the the gender part of it when it becomes relevant. Um, so, for example, I have some transgender men as patients who still have cervixes. And so when I'm talking to them about their whole-of-person care, and that includes cancer screening, it is necessary for me to say, well, do you have a cervix? Because if you do, we need to talk about cervical screening. But if they've come in with a sore throat... I don't need to know if they've got a cervix. So, yeah, it's just about respecting the person where there is. And as a mental health clinician, it's, you know, if someone comes in about depression, you don't necessarily blame it on their gender experience. You explore with them their whole of person experience just like you would with anybody else. Mm, mm. And I I was thinking, I remember... um, you know, in our discussion, something that I, I thought about that happened or maybe happened to someone else. I don't think it happened to me. But you know how your stories get incorporated into your own lifeline. Mm. Um, anyway, it was a story about someone who presented with quadriplegia um, in hospital and they had maybe, I can't remember what it was, but it wasn't related to their sex life. But suddenly, like, the medical students and the doctors were all interested in how do you have sex we're very privileged because we're in an intimate space with our patients, um, with the people who come to see us. We do get to talk about very personal things with them, mm. and uh, but we do need to be careful that we're not abusing that privilege mm. um, and uh, seek permission. And, and we also need to be careful to not make the person in front of us responsible for our education. So if you're seeing someone uh, who is transgender and you're not quite sure what's going on about being transgender, then it's important that you go and educate yourself. You find some resources and, and read so that you understand things from their point of view. And, and like 
it's a fine line because you want to be respectful of their experience and learn about their experience, but at the same time, you don't spend your therapy sessions learning about transgender in general. You go and you read up about it, just like you don't... um, Can I think of another alternative? Well, if I was dealing with somebody who was Aboriginal... um, I wouldn't necessarily expect them to educate me on everything to do with their experience because of being Aboriginal. I would go and read and and become informed for myself. Mm. Um, yeah, so... Yeah. So, so where have you learned your stuff from? Lots of reading. Yeah. Um, what sort of reading? Uh when I first started, I actually took myself off to some whole weekend education um, uh, events um, and I've been to lots of um, education events for GPs to mm. learn about it. Um, I've joined the Australian Society for People Providing Transgender Care called OSPATH um, and learned from people on those groups and I go to a peer support meeting with other doctors um, where we um, it get into the nitty-gritty of the hormone prescribing and, and stuff like that. Uh, there is also, since um, uh, just in the last few years, there are some really good websites in Australia and ACON in New South Wales has developed a fantastic website called TransHub and it's got a lot of information for people experiencing gender issues and for their allies and for clinicians involved in their care and also information on the legal aspects of changing your markers and things like that. So um, I've learned a lot from that. It's been a very well-developed resource. Um, there's also some an organisation in Melbourne that's doing a lot of research and you can read their papers. I think that's called transresearch.org. Um, so I th- it's... In, once you've got an interest in something, it's pretty you easy to find stuff. keep reading up on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, and so, I, you know, one of my re- interests is that, um, you know, when I was really young and a clinician, I wasn't even aware of my faux pas. And then I became aware of my faux pas and then I would just go, okay, I just can't do this. So I'm just not going to work in that space. Um, and I would set some boundaries um, and now, you know, I still set some boundaries, but I, but I'm more like if I make mistakes, I will go, okay, well, how can I learn from this? And also, you know, apologize to the person. And, but, but there are times when we, you know, like how do we negotiate our own discomfort? Because sometimes it can be like, now I don't have any brain space for this. You know what I mean? Like, mm. I think we have to acknowledge... I'm really interested in, like, the clinician experience as well. I mean, I know we need to think about the patient or the client, you know, but what do you think about that? I struggle most when I met someone in the gender assigned at birth and then like, that was my initial struggle, Yeah, changing the pronouns that I used, yes. changing my thoughts and even the name because I might meet someone with one name and then they take on the the new name. And uh, so before each consultation, I used to have to say to myself, okay, now I'm about to see Jack. I remember Jack's name previously as such and such. And I won't say that name because often people say that's dead name. And Jack has a cervix and Jack is on testosterone. Um, And just get my head around 
okay, right, so that I then am less likely to make a faux pas. Um, <laughs> you clearly don't make as many faux pas as I do. <laughs> like, you know, it's just, just, it gets easier. Um, and I've got, you know, in, in my notes, what pronouns they use. and But I still sometimes make a mistake. And if I do, I just say, look, I'm sorry. And we move on. Um, and m- most of my clients quite forgiving if I make a mistake and apologise immediately. But mm. not like just, you don't make it about you when you're apologising. Yeah. You know, you don't require lots and lots of reassurance. You mm. just, I'm really, respectfully, I'm really sorry I got that wrong. Um, mm. And then state the right, thing and then move on. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. And hopefully by showing that you're making the effort to get things right, that's an affirming experience mm. for the person that's in your room with you. Yeah. And, and you know, I did, I, I remember, like, you know, when we first graduated, and I'm older than you, so, it, you know, the idea that prescribing the pill was still a thing or even referring Mm. for a termination and that there were some people who were hugely uncomfortable with that. Um, And so they were then required to have a sign in the waiting room to say, Dr X doesn't prescribe the pill or doesn't refer for termination. So if this is what you've come for, go and don't see Dr X. Um, I mean, because I really want to sort of honour both sides of the equation, you know what I mean? Like when we're thinking of... Because we're still... It's that thing about transitions, isn't it? Like that sort of liminal space in between the before and the after is just so uncomfortable. Like how can we do it in such a way that is respectful of both sides? I think... I mean, I'm the only doctor in my practice at the moment that prescribes gender-affirming hormone treatment. Mm. Um, But I still... You know, I've asked all of the uh, doctors in my practice to be aware of using correct pronouns and and all of my admin staff. And actually, my admin staff are wonderful. Mm. They're very keen to get it right. They're checking in with me and, to make sure that the they're getting it right. And even the toilet sign, making it a unisex toilet, so we don't have that whole. What's you wrong know. with having toilet? On, rather than male and, and female, female, especially like, in a general practice. Like, that's right. You know, They look exactly the same, for goodness sake. And we have change tables in both of the toilets. Yes. So That's yeah. right. Yeah. But, so that sort of thing. So the other doctors in my practice maybe don't feel that they have the medical skills to provide the, the hormone prescription mm. or especially to initiate the hormone prescription. Yeah. Um, and so we all have our areas of special interest. There's a doctor in my practice who does a lot of skin surgery. Mm. And if we get a if I get a difficult one that I think is beyond my scope, I'll ask him to mm. look after that patient. And so I expect him to be respectful of my trans patient's identity, but not to do their hormone prescribing if he's not comfortable with that. That's my area of specialty and I'm very happy to to, to provide that part of the care. Mm. But basically, that basic human respect for this is who you are and it's not really my job to question, right? So mm. you might have been assigned female at birth, but if you say your name is Jack and you're a man, then that's what you are. Mm. It's mm. not hard. Mm. And and I think, you know, when I'm thinking of what people get up against, you know what I mean, just from mm. being different, um, and 
what about sort of if I, not necessarily working within that space, but I meet someone and I'm trying to sort of, you know, they're going to go and see someone who's got more expertise, but in the meantime, is there anything I can say to that person like that they can help themselves. You know how sometimes when I'm working with someone, say, for example, they've got anxiety or depression and um, and they, they need to, you know, do something or I haven't got an appointment straight away and I'll refer them to a website or, you know, they can start doing some things online and some apps. And is there anything that you would recommend that as clinicians we can give to people that would be helpful? I would... Um Again, using the TransHub mm. website, it has links to peer support ah. um, and that can be very helpful if people are feeling like they're the only person in the town that's got the issue. Yeah. Um, there are Facebook, you know, social media support groups as well. Mm. Um, there are, actually, it's interesting, there are people living in the community having transitioned, just living as that gender not out, don't really want anything to do with the transgender community in inverted commas because they're actually, they've embraced the binary on the other side of what they were assigned and um, don't really need to have the peer support Mm. um, because they're living a very suburban lifestyle. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing wrong with the suburban lifestyle. No, but that's Nothing right, isn't all. it? Yeah. That, that it's 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 sort of like it's it's the ones who need it are the ones, like all of us, you know, like all of us who are transitioning. Like I'm thinking when I had my children, you know, that I you needed was, mother. Support. I needed mother support, and we're both menopausal now. I might yes. have needed a bit of support from women we going through a similar do, experience. We do, we do. That's right. The conversations get interesting, and so it's so that that's thing, that transition thing. So yeah, mm. looking for peer support. Um, there's a place in Sydney called the Gender Centre that provides some supportive counselling that Mm -hmm. people can reach out to. Um, There are quite a few mental health clinicians who um, have expertise Mm. in supporting people and uh, they can be found, A, on the the TransHub website, there's a list of gender-affirming doctors Mm. and Ozpath has a list of gender-affirming clinicians, including speech therapists and psychologists. Mm. and you can also, I think, even looking at in that find a psychologist um, website, you can ask that someone has experience in gender and they can find that if they feel that they need the support of a mental health clinician. Yeah. Um, so those sorts of things. I think peer support is very important. Mm, mm. Mm. Yeah, it makes such a difference, I think. Mm. Um, and... I was, I was thinking, you know, about the, the issue of language, like just sort of harking back to that. Mm. And um, do you think we'll ever get to the stage where, because we're creating new words all the time, mm. uh, you know, and in English, you know, the pronoun they is being used um, within that space. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I mm-hmm. mean? Like, mm-hmm. the, and, and, but sometimes it can get kind of clumsy. And I, I know I've read a book by Becky Chambers or some books by Becky Chambers where she uses the pronoun xir, X-Y-R, to designate a human being. And then you don't have to know what's in their pants or their gender or anything else. You just know, oh, that's a or, or that's human being. Human. It's, mm. it's another human or, or it's another, actually, it's another sentient being, Mm. I think the aliens are sort of included as well. Um, But it just seemed, do you think we're ever going to formulate or is it too difficult? Is it like the flag or the anthem? (laughs) (coughs) Sorry. I think think we are moving in that direction. Yeah. Um, 
there are um, there are people who are not focusing as much on gender as they raise their children, just mm. allowing their children to choose the clothes they want, choose the haircut they want, choose the toys they... and not policing, oh, no, boys don't play with dolls. You can't have that. Yeah. Um, so, and I think people are aware of language and there's resistance because pe- some people don't like change. Mm. Uh, but there, I think we see with the generation coming up that they're more comfortable with using gender-neutral terms and hopefully we'll see that develop more. Mm. Mm. As you say, language always changes and there's always pushback, but... Yeah, we are progressing. People are more comfortable with using they. That's a good start. It is a good start. It's a very good start. Um, So, look, we've come to the end of our conversation, I think, unless there's anything else you wanted to add. Yeah, I think it's just be aware of meeting the person in the space, making them welcome in your space, checking in with them about pronouns, um, and, and then dealing with the problem and not making everything about gender. Um, but, you know, meeting them where they're at. Uh, uh, some of their experience, the uh, intersectional experience certainly can inform p- experience of trauma and reaction to traumatic experience. Um, so be aware of that. Um, I, it's a great space to work in. I really <laughs> enjoy working with these people. That's, that's what gave me the idea, you know, when you were telling me about it and you go, oh, it's just fantastic. And I think it's, just, you, it's really put a spark in your, like a spring in your step and a spark in your eye, you know, to sort of be doing this sort of work. And I thought, You really yeah. make a difference to people's lives when you can mm. help them affirm what, what they know to be true inside themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's really an experience for me of being very patient-led mm. um, and... And that's really lovely. Like, mm. I've had to learn so that I can support people in their journeys. But it's very much about sitting down and saying, what are your goals? What are you hoping to achieve? How can I help you? And that's a lovely way to be practising. It is, isn't it? Mm. That's right. Mm. Even though as GPs we're sort of thought that, this is what you do. Okay. Mm. Um, so, look, it's been lovely. Thank you very much for chatting with me, Martina. In the next two episodes, Julianne White, mental health social worker, will be rejoining me. And we're really going to be focusing um, on the importance of connection, of relationships, of transitions within relationships. And the last one will be a review session because we learn so much from each other. So please access the link in the show notes. Tell us your comments, your ideas for future series. We'd really love to hear from you. So it's goodbye from me, Monica Moore, a GP, and my friend and guest, Dr. Martina Gleeson. Goodbye from me too. Thank you. Talk to you next time. Bye. Visit mhpn.org.au to find out more about our online professional program, including podcasts, webinars, as well as our face-to-face interdisciplinary mental health networks across Australia. 